Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, everybody. This is episode 112. It's another interview with Dr. Judd Burton. This time, we're going to be looking at the subject of sacred geography. And Dr. Burton will also be telling us about his new book on Gobekli Tepe and how it relates to the issue of sacred geography as well. Please take some time and go visit Dr. Burton's websites, burtonbeyond.com and tioba.org. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, so please go check out everything that BDK does on the two YouTube channels, Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live, to find our content that we're putting out every week. Also, I just released my new five-song EP called Genesis. Please go check that out. You can find that on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere you can purchase or stream digital music. Go check it out. Also, my book, Faithful Witness, should be out by the end of the month at the very latest, early November, but it should be late October. So please be ready for that. And thank you so much for your prayers and support. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 112, my interview on sacred geography with Dr. Judd Burton. Dr. Judd Burton, thank you again for being on Reclaiming the Faith, man. I think this is like the fourth time, man. I'm just so, so thankful <laughs> that you, you'll, you're you willing to do this with me. My pleasure. Happy to. Yeah, brother. Well, um, we're going to be talking about sacred geography today and some about your uh, your book that you have coming out on Gobekli Tepe. So um, how would you define sacred geography? Sacred geography is um, is sanctified territory, basically sanctified land. Sometimes the term sacred space and sacred geography are used interchangeably, um, but there the, the, there's some there's some uh, uh, authority placed over the the, the territory, um, either either rendered by some deity in the minds of, of the people who are using the sacred space or sacred geography or um, a combination of uh, the, the practice of rituals taking place within a, a given territory or a given space. Uh, that, in essence, is, is sacred geography. Okay. Now, it, it, can, it can actually be, I mean, technically sacred geography... Uh, you know, in in most scholarly discussions of sacred geography, you're talking about terra firma, so it's on on the earth. But technically, sacred geography could also include you know extra dimensional, you know he- heavenly locations as well. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. 
Um, so h- how did sacred geography play a role in the Old Testament? Well, it played, I mean, uh, it played a key role. I mean, Im- imagine... Uh, imagine reading the Old Testament without any of the geographical references. Uh, essentially, everywhere you turn, uh, depending on what, what part of the ancient Near East or the Mediterranean world you were in, um, it was all sacred space to somebody. Um, now, the, the obvious marker for um, students of the Bible uh, would be the sacred geography of Israel itself. But, you know, again... Um, Egypt to the Egyptians was sacred space. Its temples were sacred space and sacred geography. Uh, the same can be said of, of people in Mesopotamia and Anatolia and other parts of the Levant. Um, sacred, sacred geography for different reasons because their sacralities were different. Um, so the, but because the farther back in history you go, people... More, more people per capita typically subscribe to a supernatural world, worldview. In fact, um, not having a supernatural worldview was uh, anomalous uh, in the ancient world. Um, these were people who believed that the gods interacted directly with them. Uh, and in the case of Israel, that Yahweh interacted uh, directly with them. And so you really can't get through the Old Testament um, without references to sacred geography, um, the the very uh, boundaries of the the Holy Land, the land promised to the Hebrews, constitute uh, uh, the perimeter of a sacred geography, the entire nation, and of course, um, the the city of Jerusalem became a a fixture in terms of sacred geography. Uh, for the Israelites, as did a number of other locations where shrines and uh, monuments and uh, altars and things like that were erected uh, as a, a testament to Yahweh and his interaction with the people of Israel. And so you're hard, like I say, you're hard pressed to get through the Old Testament without running into uh, examples of sacred geography. Yeah. So what is Gobekli Tepe, and how is it an example of sacred geography? Well, Gobekli Tepe is um, a site in eastern Turkey, southeastern Turkey, uh, and it, it dates back to the late Mesolithic, early Neolithic period. The conventional dating is about 10,500 B.C., and is considered to be the oldest temple in the world um, because it's a it's the oldest example we have thus far of the transition uh, between uh, 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 animism or totemism, the reverence of animal spirits, and the conceptualization that, that their gods were anthropomorphic, that they were human-like. Uh, because some of the, uh, like the T-shaped pillars in the circular enclosures are, are anthropomorphic. They actually have, you know, these, they and the other pillars actually have anthropomorphic features, um, uh, you know, arms that are carved on the sides and fingers, uh, you know, in front hands in front of them. Uh, so they're, they're clearly depicting something in human-like form. Uh, 
uh, and this this sort of uh, not, the, the externalization was already there, but uh, this this concept uh, seems to seems to be changing uh, for some people in the Neolithic, and it, it the earliest evidence we have now is at Gobekli Tepe, and it it seems to be the a kind of paradigm breaker in a number of ways because for the longest time historians and archaeologists and anthropologists thought that agriculture had to be the bedrock for uh, civilization but the whole reason that Gobekli Tepe is built is for religious purposes the agriculture the cultivation of, of wheat um, is epiphenomenal of the building of Gobekli Tepe so it, it, that that comes along in its wake. Uh, so, just by definition, at its foundations, Gobekli Tepe is a sacred geography. It's sacred space. Um, if we're to follow the, you know, the kind of traditional definition of sacred geography, uh, it, it's the the sculpting of, of of a corner of the religious consciousness of these people um, because uh, you know this event that happens in their lives that prompts them to you know change trajectory in terms of, of who they're worshiping and why they're worshiping them um, because religion is so foundational Gobekli Tepe is a, a, a it's it's a religious capital for that reason in a lot of ways uh, because it was drawing people from uh, in some cases quite far away um, so you've got people from the Levant uh, who who are building there you got people from all over the Anatolian Peninsula um, you're, you're likely drawing in people from uh, the Near East. Uh, and the Transcaucasus. So it's, you know, something happened that prompted these people to do this, and uh, this whole area became uh, impacted by the sacred geography of Gobekli Tepe because there are sites around it like Novali Chari uh, and Shanlurfa uh, that display levels of. Uh, uh, art and, and architecture reminiscent of Gobekli Tepe. There are animal carvings there, um, but they're all, uh, there aren't any prey animals. They're, they're, they're all predators, um, you know, leopards and, um, uh, let's see, vultures and um, uh, scorpions and adders and, and things like that are are sort of peppered all throughout the um, the temple complex itself, and those actually are sculpturary. They're not just bas relief. They're they're actual sculptures that have been sculpted um, onto uh, the the areas of the the site that that are, are in other words, that whoever the artisan was is is scraping away this workable rock uh, which is a kind of limestone um, in order to make these these protrusions which are animals do you think 
the choice of predatorial animals is signifying some type of malevolent religious leaning? It's possible. Um, I've, I've considered that uh, in the past because, you know, I mean, these people are hunter-gatherers. Um, perhaps um, there's just more work that needs yeah. to be done, quite quite frankly. I mean, it's an sure. immense sight, and, and it's, there's only been... You know, even with the, the very worthwhile and valuable work that Klaus Schmidt and other archaeologists have done at the site, uh, it's 300 square meters. I mean, it, it, it's immense. You know, they're, they're, I, I doubt that they've excavated a 20th of the, the site. So um, more work needs to be done. Um, we know that there are many, many... In fact, probably dozens of, of more circular enclosures under the ground, just from just from the imaging, just from ground penetrating radar and uh, magnetometer sweeps. Wow! Um, so, so why is the discovery of Gobekli Tepe important for 21st century believers? Well, the the scholars that subscribe to a strictly naturalist perspective on Gobekli Tepe would say that there's not much beyond this marks a, a, a significant cultural transition uh, in the trajectory of, of human societies. And that's true. I mean, that that's a valid uh, observance. Um, but for believers, um, people need to consider that the just how significant of a change Gobekli Tepe is because virtually all humans before that were hunter-gatherers or horticulturalists of some type. Um, that kind of, of significant change that impacts culture, um, that impacts ideation, um, Every, every facet of, of every institution of a society's culture is irrev irrevocably changed. That, and now, if you look at examples of this in human history, the only time that that happens, that kind of change happens, is when a, a society is acted upon by a vastly superior, technologically superior culture. Um, and although I, I don't agree with everything that he proposes, I think that Jared Diamond makes some pretty salient points in Guns, Germs, and Steel, and I think that, that it's an apt analogy, and I, th and I think it, it explains and it explains a lot about the identity of the, 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 the things that were actually causing the change to happen at Gobekli Tepe. And in my, to my mind, those are the watchers. Um, when you, Diamond talks about the clash between the old world and the new world in the age of exploration, specifically uh, the Spanish conquest of uh, the Incan Empire, the, the big clash between uh, Francisco Pizarro and Atahualpa. Um, so what set the Spanish up? to be so vastly technologically superior. Uh, it's not that they were braver or better people than the Inca, but 
there were thousands of years behind them of cultural development uh, that had to do with geography, that had to do with epidemiology, it had to do with the development of technologies, um, you know, that, that date back, you know, to the, the Neolithic in, in many cases and continued throughout the historical period. And the geographical argument is interesting because the continent of Eurasia is long east to west, which meant that when animal husbandry and farming and metallurgy and things like that developed, they didn't have a lot of climactic or geographical barriers to go past. Uh, so they spread relatively quickly. Um, there were also, uh, on the animal husbandry end, um, herd animals were kept uh, by, by numerous Eurasian peoples. Uh, and in in doing so and being such in such close proximity to them they they're you know inoculated basically generationally by by being around them um working with them uh you know so things like like uh, anthrax and smallpox things that start in bovine populations for instance you know they they developed antibodies for uh, and so, um, if you look at the, the Americas, they're long north to south. And so when civilization sprouted up in Mesoamerica, uh, or farming or technology or whatever, uh, it had basically every geographical and climactic obstacle that the world had to offer because all the various climates and, um, geographical features, mountain ranges, rivers, and snow, and desert, everything else you can imagine. So the spread was slower. Uh, so that by the time that Pizarro and Atahualpa clash, there's not much of a contest. Uh, and it had nothing to do, you know, not exclusively, didn't have anything to do exclusively with the generation at that time, because thousands of years of, of geographical, epidemiological, technological um, preparation had set them up, had set the Spanish up to win. Um, and there's a kind of unconscious biological warfare that's going on because none of the peoples in the Americas kept herd animals at the time. So, um, you know, smallpox was especially virulent. Um, so these cultures that are impacted like this are, are generally never the same and, and, and often not for the better. Um, I think that that's probably the best analogy that we can use to understand what happens at Gobekli Tepe. You have this significant cultural change by, brought upon by a, for all intents and purposes, a technologically superior race from another dimension because there was nobody on the earth at the time who could prompt that sort of change. I, I mean, an argument could possibly be made for the religious end of it, but even once you begin to take it apart, even, even that uh, has the mark of the watchers, so to speak. Um, but this, this irrevocable change that happens um, can only happen because of the influence of some outside force. And I think the only culprit at this time were the elder, you know, the quote unquote elder gods of the prehistoric world. And that would be the, the watchers.
Yeah, which is written about uh, in First Enoch. Um, and, you know, it's making me think that uh, similarly in the book of Enoch, it says it's, it's for a latter generation. Um, perhaps the discovery of, mm-hmm. of Gobekli Tepe is also meant, you know, from, from God's point of view to prepare us as well, because it seems like uh, history repeats itself. And so potentially that kind of a thing is coming back again, an assault on um, God and his people. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a definite possibility. I mean, I, I, I tend to agree that the timing of its, its discovery is suspect, you know, in, in terms of the prophetic clock. And in, in the same way that, um, you know, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, preceded the establishment of the state of Israel. Yeah. Well, well speaking of the state of Israel, um, can you explain the importance of, quote, the land, unquote, in Judeo-Christian faith tradition? And do you think there is a theology of the land? If so, like, how would you describe it? Yeah, I would, I would say that there is a, a, a theology of the land, um, because you can't separate, for believers, you can't separate the story of salvation and its origins from geography, and you certainly can't separate the story of, of God's unfolding plan uh, with the, the Hebrews from geography. So they're, they're integrally linked. And, you know, like I said, whether it's whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, try making any historical or theological sense of the book without the geographical references. You you won't get very far. It'll be it'll be um, it'll be a truncated philosophy uh, at best. Um, but the the purpose, the drive, the um, the direction of God's plan um, is properly contextualized with geography in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, yeah, I think, again, reiterating what I said earlier, you can't really understand the narrative of the Bible, much less its historicity or theology, uh, without these these geographical connections. Yeah, you know, you were mentioning Jerusalem earlier uh, in the South, and uh, it seems like, and this is probably a pretty weak analogy, but it seems like the there's this like civil war kind of being set up in the north. You know, you have mm-hmm. you have Dan, the apostate tribe, mm-hmm. with Bashan mm-hmm. and the Serpent Mound, Gilgal, uh, Rephaim, um, against you know the southern area where where the Messiah comes from. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about Dan, and it's you know possible connection to the Antichrist, because um, like Hippolytus writes his treatise on Christ and Antichrist, and he, he shows so many um, comparisons um, and contrasts with uh, Christ and the Antichrist, how the Antichrist is going to try to appear to be the Christ, but he doesn't have the Antichrist coming out of Judah. He has it coming out of Dan, and he's using mm-hmm. Old Testament passages to kind of back that up like Genesis 49, talking about Dan being a viper. Um, mm-hmm. Deuteronomy 33, talking about Dan being a lion's whelp. Um, so I was just curious, like, um, do you think that um, 
there is a is perhaps uh, a, you know, a possibility that maybe half of the Antichrist's lineage would come from Dan in the north. Um, that's an interesting proposal. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's possible. I mean, considering, uh, you know, considering, uh, you know, everything associated with Dan and the, 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 you know, they're forever marked by, you know, their, their actions, probably the, the, the story that most people would be familiar with would be Micah's, the Micah's idol, uh, story that, that, that sort of brings the mark of shame on, on to Dan, but yeah, it's, it's entirely possible, you know, there, and there are a number of theories, some of them, some of them tenable, most of them not about, um, you know, the the tribes of Dan, uh, leaving and and being, you know, becoming other peoples, um, and ships like the, uh, the, yeah, the, the, the Danoi are mentioned in Greek literature. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the name of the um, Irish yeah. or, or, or Celtic um, lower gods was the Tuatha de Danann. Mm-hmm. You can see Dan in there, Danu. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's possible. I mean, it, it's it's definitely a possible scenario. Um, yeah. Well, cool. Um, so moving to the New Testament, how, what are some examples of sacred geography that we see in the, in the New Testament? Well, um, Judea is a, an occupied territory at this time. Um, if we're just within the purview of the Gospels. Um, but all of those or I should say many of those Old Testament sacred geographical locations and significances are, are apt and pertinent for the New Testament narrative as well. But you, in, in Israel, you have a kind of, uh, um, how would you say, um, a kind of invasive sacred geography um, and this was problematic in the Old Testament too, with influence from all of Israel's neighbors. You know, the Moabites, the, the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, all the other tri- tribes of people that lived in um, the Levant and, and practiced a type of paganism. Uh, but in in the New Testament, that that's almost almost all in the purview of the Greco-Roman world. So, in the case of Judea, you've got to the Greek and Roman gods that had been introduced by the, the Hellenistic Greeks first and then the Romans. Um, so you, you, you definitely have some pagan sacred geography overlaid with the traditional sacred geography of, um, of the Israelites. And that becomes, because Israel is an occupied territory uh, at the time, those those instances of sacred geography, those locations become even more cherished uh, for the people at the, t- at the time. Now, as Christianity begins to spread and move out into the Mediterranean basin and other parts of the ancient world, um, it, 
following that with the establishment of of communities of believers churches inevitably they're creating sacred space not only on a local level but also on an international level mm. um so the so the churches church buildings eventually get built uh in in some cases although a lot of people are, are meeting in houses and and where basically wherever they can do so safely uh, so you're creating sacred geography on on multiple levels at the same time uh, you're running into the sacred geography of the greco-roman pagan traditions uh, and so there's a, a kind of battle of sacred geographies that's taking place both in the old testament and in the new testament yeah that was making me think of uh act 16 with the girl with the python spirit that's connected mm-hmm. to the Oracle at Delphi. And Oracle at Delphi, that's right. Yeah, and then with um, with Ephesus, how so many people are renouncing, you know, their their paganism and burning books and all that, and you have that temple of uh, Artemis there, and the people are mm-hmm. really scared that Christianity is about to annihilate, you know, this worship mm-hmm. of Di- Diana, basically nullify it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's cool. Um. So this is a question from a buddy of mine, and it kind of um, kind of blends Old Testament and New Testament together. Um, but uh, he says, I wondered why the fallen angels specifically chose Mount Hermon and why God chose Mount Sinai. When the watchers came down, they originally were to teach mankind the ways and laws of God, but abandoned those instructions, instead taught them forbidden knowledge. And he's pulling from some patristics there. Um, mm-hmm. God gave mankind those instructions himself later, but chose Ma- Mount Sinai instead. Uh, why? I'm also interested if Dr. Burton has any idea where Eden is and if it plays into Bible prophecy. Mm-hmm. So why is God choosing Mount well, Sinai instead of Hermon or, yeah. Well, um, th- that's an inter- interesting question. Um, now, Traditionally, Hermon had been a, a boundary marker, uh, one of the nor- northern boundary markers, and you can really kind of think of, um, particularly because I don't I don't believe that Mount Sinai was in the Sinai Peninsula. I think that southwestern Arabia is probably a better fit, um, but I mean you're you're essentially looking at the northern and southern boundaries of the Promised Land, um, so. In order to carry out their altered plan, I think the Watchers picked the northern location so that they could fan out into this area. Now, mm-hmm. angels aren't all-knowing, right? but they're highly intelligent. Uh, so they discerned, you know, once they became part of the satanic coup, if you want to look at it in terms of, of, of extra-dimensional geopolitics, once they became part of that plan, um, they knew that they were going to have to end up in a place, or the place, rather, that the Messiah was going to spring from. They didn't know exactly where that was, but they had a general idea. So I think that that's, that's one explanation as to why they ended up uh, in Mount Hermon and the traditions that built up around it. Um, it's also worth noting as a footnote to that, that 
uh, you know, the cardinal directions represent different things in, um, uh, in terms of sacred geography to, to the Israelites. And north was the direction of evil. Uh, this was the place where, um, you know, Baal had his abodes. Uh, Mount Saffon was to the north, actually not too, not terribly far from um, from Mount Hermon. Um, so these seem to be the the. You can think of these two mountains as the polar opposites of the religious consciousness of the ancient Israelites. Um, with Yahweh taking the southern end, um, that, um, that too, I think, is significant because it's, it's the... These mountains in general, okay, in religious studies are... are, are thought of as these these um, uh, uh, connections between the, the celestial and the mundane, the earthly and the, the, the heavenly. Um, and they were, in religious consciousness all over the world, they were considered to be, uh, and, and are considered to be, natural features, but they they jut up into the sky. They, they, they go into the realm of the gods. And so they represented these, these points of connectivity between these two worlds. Um, and I think that that's very much, it's something that I've written about in my work on Peneus and Mount Hermon. I think that's very much at play there for different reasons. Uh, one nefarious, one salvific. Um, and so you could kind of think of the, those two mountains uh, in that context. Now, as to the location of Eden, I, I still firmly believe that Eden is in eastern was in eastern Turkey. We have two of the geographical markers, um, even if they're, you know, even if their direction was somewhat different. Uh, uh, the, the 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 direction of the flow of the rivers is somewhat different in the pre-flood world. Um, we have to remember that Moses is being shown a vision of all this, and he's using stuff as best he can, uh, things that he recognizes uh, to describe this vision of, of prehistory. In much the same way that John is showing, being shown the end of time, Moses is being shown the beginning of time. Mm. Um, now, Eden uh, was a country that had a garden in it, um, that began uh, the, the, the redemptive line for humanity, the line of the Messiah. Um, but I, I think the, the case can be made for an, uh, an Eastern Turkey location. Um, that entire region is significant, in fact, uh, because of its proximity to Gobekli Tepe. It's, it's associated with Noah because it, the ark comes to rest in the mountains of Ararat. Um, this, this is um, uh, a region of, of the ancient Near East that's also significant for Abraham. Uh, Abraham's uh, home of Haran is in this region. We have those geographical markers in the Old Testament. Um, and that's, that's why Shanlurfa 
is actually a better candidate for Abraham's Ur than Ur in Iraq. Hmm. Um, and in fact, that's the local tradition that's existed for centuries that Shanlurfa is actually Abraham's Ur. Uh, it makes sense because there's so many references back to, to this. This is where he sends his servant to get a wife for his, his son. Um, he's tied to the, the land. Um, so there are a lot, there's lots of biblical significance to that part of Turkey as to Eden and what it has, what it has to do, um, with prophecy. Um, if you read biblical prophecy and specifically revelation, um, it's, it's about, in many ways, it's about restoring paradise. It's about restoring Eden. Um, and so that's got to be part of the, the prophetic equation, if you will, um, in any discussion about uh, the Garden of Eden, its location, and what its significance may have. Now, I'm also of the mind that the Watchers chose this location uh, to make an outpost, which I think is, is what Gobekli Tepe was in addition to a, a, a temple. It's kind of supernatural outpost. They, did, they didn't know exactly where the Garden of Eden was. It was under guard, of course, by an angel. My surmise is that almost in a kind of Tower of Babel sort of way, they hoped to weaponize Eden, uh, convince the angel, either convince the angel to side with them that guarded the place, or they thought that they could overpower him and enter Eden because it was this weird place where... The earthly dimension touched the heavenly dimension. Um, you know, Adam and Eve were right there, had direct access to God. You know, they could talk to him anytime they wanted to. So I think that they they wanted to weaponize that in some way uh, in the, the retaking of heaven, which is a scenario that plays out in the um, Tower of Babel story. Do you think that could be... The, re- the reason for that is to get to the tree of life or the angels that are rebelling against God. Now, say that again. So kind of like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden so they couldn't mm-hmm. get back to the tree of life in one sense. Mm-hmm. That sin mm-hmm. bringing death. And this mm-hmm. is something that Al Barino was talking about on the Blurry Creatures podcast recently. I'm just curious to get mm-hmm. your thoughts on it. Like he he's of the opinion that um, these fallen angels, the watchers that sinned, are also dying. And so their attempt to, they, they're trying to get back to the tree of life somehow. Mm-hmm. And so, like, my question is, like, do you think them setting up that outpost next to where they believe the Garden of Eden is, is to try to get in there so that they can have immortality in a sense? Well, I had never, uh, never really considered that. I, I personally don't, and I haven't listened to Tim's sure. argument. He may, he may have some valid points, um, but I, I personally have not run across anything that would convince me that they weren't eternal beings. Yeah. Um, because, I, I mean, you, even, even in their state now, they don't, you know, they're, their their livelihood, their biology, whatever you want to call it, you know, is is it's not native to this place. Yeah. Um. 
So, I, I, you know, for the time being, uh, that's not something that I subscribe to, that they're, that they're actually dying. Um, the, I mean, if we're to believe Scripture, they're going to be, they're going to be in a perpetual state of death after after judgment. It'll be a living death. Right. Uh, they'll they won't be able to escape um, the punishment that's coming. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I, I'd have to go back and, and listen to that. But um, as it stands now, I don't I don't really subscribe to that. Cool. Cool. Um. Well, continuing to think about prophetic things, future things. Um, how do you believe sacred geography will play a role in the future? Well, I mean, there's not a time that it doesn't play a role. Uh, there's that, and I I don't mean that flippantly. I'm just saying that you can think about it really as kind of competing sacred geographies, you know, the, with the with believers on the one hand and, you know, people that oppose believers on the other or, or are indifferent. Um, we also have to remember that, you know, Paul gives us a really good taxonomy of the kind of entities. Um, and at this point he's, 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 he's not telling his audience anything that they don't know because this is old Testament stuff. You know, this, the, these entities that control these geographical realms, um, you know, that God had set them over the, over the nations. Um, you know, they that's a that's a sacred geography in and unto itself because it's not only it's not only celestial in nature, but it's also earthly um, because you actually have geographical regions of the earth that are policed, not policed, but but ruled uh, by these things. Uh, and so, it's in many ways, it's it's competing sacred geographies constantly. Yeah. Um, so uh, in, in John 2, Jesus calls himself the nous of God, like bringing in that, that term about either the holy of holies or the holy place. Um, mm-hmm. And Paul uses the same term when referring to Christians in, in a plural form in 1 Corinthians 3 and then a singular form in 1 Corinthians 6. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you think that the Antichrist's coming abomination of desolation could include more than just a defilement of a building known as God's temple. Like, cause Jesus is saying, yeah, there's the holy place, but I'm the holy place. Mm-hmm. And so like the Antichrist setting himself in God's temple. Um, do you think that he's trying to maybe pull a, a, a similar thing, like putting himself inside people in a weird, weird way? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, there's a, a sort of, I like the way that, that Doug Hamp talks about that sort of thing in his, his books. Um, Corrupt, the Corrupting the Image series is really good. I don't know if you take a look at that, but in it, he, he argues a kind one. of similar. Yeah, he argues a kind of similar, there's a similar logic in, in what he's proposing. Okay. Um, that, um, you know, the, the, this illustration, you know, that Jesus is using is apt. Um, and, and for that matter is also, you know, when it, when it comes to people, when it comes to humans, um, they become 
the battlegrounds in, in a lot of ways for these competing sacred geographies. Right. Um, so, you know, those are, those are also great examples of, you know, how you can't get very far historically or theologically in the text of the Bible without having to deal with sacred geography, you know, much less physical or political geography. Now, now Jesus is using, you know, the, the, the body, uh, as a, a portion of that, uh, to me, which, which goes back to the, reflects the connection that the, the, the Israelites had with, um, the land that was apportioned to them. Well, uh, last main question this is just kind of coming to my head. I believe, uh, the late David Flynn made a case for the, uh, foundational stone of the earth mm-hmm. being in, in Jerusalem where mm-hmm. the Ark of the Covenant would, would be laid or whatever. And so, mm-hmm. like, do you think, what, what do you think is the reason for Jerusalem being like the ultimate place of showdown uh, between Christ and Antichrist? Well, i you know, I mean, David Flynn was on a whole other level compared to the rest. <laughs> sure. He, he was, he was quite insightful. Um, I, I still refer to a lot of, a lot of his work. Um, but, uh, as to why, uh, Jerusalem became the showdown, it, it, the explanation is really simple. It's because God designated it as the capital for the nation of Israel. Um, and it's, it's really just that simple. Uh, now as to the foundation stone, uh, actually, actually coming from Jerusalem, uh, I'd have to go back and look at, at Flynn's work. Um, but that would, that just adds another, another layer of substantiation basically to why, why it would be. But when you consider so much of the the narrative of the Bible, the drama of the Bible is taking place in this location. Um, this is, it's the ultimate battleground. I mean, it's the final battleground, right? I mean, it's, it's the most trampled on fought over, you know, stretch of territory on the planet, uh, in many ways, not, not just in terms of the armies of men, but also in terms of, of supernatural armies, you know, um, the, the, you know, good versus evil, you know, cosmic order, Star Wars kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, uh, again, not to be flippant, but to kind of put it in perspective, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Um, and, um, this part of the world was ground zero for, um, you know, the, 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 the first stages really, in, of the execution of, of Satan's plan against the Messiah uh, to destroy, to either either corrupt or, or completely destroy the bloodline, uh, which of course, you know, he failed at, at doing. But um, I think that there, there are significant things happening in Jerusalem that are sort of, of moving forward the prophetic clock as it were um you know the 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 movement of the the american embassy from tel aviv was pretty significant but you know there are also other things going on uh like the they've they've um identified the line of red heifer necessary for the 
sacrifices. Um, I, I, the name of the organization, organization escapes me, but um, all the materials and plans and heavy equipment for building the temple are, are ready to go at a moment's notice, yeah. uh, basically whenever that happens. And so um, even in our own time, we, we can sort of discern um, the the urgency that's embodied in the sacred geography of Israel do and you, Jerusalem, especially. Do you feel comfortable giving a hypothesis as to why God chose that that specific area? I mean, I know that goes back to you know, it seems like it goes back to Abraham and Isaac. Go to the mountain, I'll show you. You know, and it's it's right there. Right, right. But um, as to why he would have chosen that, do you do you feel comfortable offering a, a hypothesis on that? Well, I mean, I I, I mean the it's the beginning of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, well, not not the app. Uh, that's actually though that that's where we find the 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 sort of of first illustration of the sacrifice that Jesus would eventually make, mm-hmm. which he does make in Jerusalem. Um. So the, right there, those are two very big um, anchor points, if you will, for why God chose this place, why it's so significant in the past, why it'll be so significant as a battleground in the future, um, because it's it's always been a battleground. Um, so there's my there's my very terse. Uh, hypothesis as to why um, Jerusalem is so significant in, in the sacred geography of Israel. Well, thanks, man. Um, what are some final words of encouragement or advice you'd like to give our listeners? And also, where can they find all of your your awesome work? Well, I always always offer the encouragement of salvation. Uh, you know, it, it that that's the the chiefest of joys that you can derive in this this life. Um, and we live in, in kind of scary times right now for a number of reasons, but, you know, we have to remember, you know, where our faith as believers, we have to remember where our faith lies. And so we do kingdom work, you know, until we're, we're called home. Um, and, you know, it's never too late in, in terms of prophecy, you know, God always allows for a reprieve. You know, if if people repent and turn back to God, if, if we can do that on a society level here in the States, um, you know, the, there's hope. There's, there's always hope. Uh, even if it doesn't come in that form, there's always going to be some sort of, we have a hope that, that transcends and goes beyond the mundane, you know, even on this planet. Um, if people want to follow me, uh, they can check out my websites, burtonbeyond.com and tioba.org. Um, I'm on YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter. I'm, I'm starting to, to get more um, platforms like Gab and um, going to be moving some stuff over to um, Rumble uh, so that the uh, I can bypass any sort of un- undue censorship. I haven't had yeah. to deal with, with with any of it yet, but you know how long that's going to last. We'll see. Yeah. Um, people can order my books um, uh, through the site. I also have a, a, 
author page at lulu.com uh, where people can get the books. And I'm in the process of moving stuff over to Amazon, so it won't be too long before they can they can do that. Um, I've got a special this week on, on coursework. People can get all the uh, – each certification is on sale for $110. Um, so that's a 12 course module. So if you're interested in sacred geography, um, the, the biblical anthropology certification will probably be right up somebody's alley because it deals, you know, there's, there's a whole course module in that certification program that deals with geography, biblical geography. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you taking the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Gonna change my ways. <laughs> <laughs>